Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change where we talk about current events and how they relate to interpersonal violence and abuse. Outspoken is a project of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center located in San Marcos, Texas. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse and is seeking support, services, or needs more information, links to resources can be found in our episode description. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of their organizations or affiliates. Welcome back to Outspoken, a podcast for social change. I'm Megan. And I'm Kiara. And today we have Nathan with us. Nathan works in the prevention office alongside us and often is having these conversations with us. Uh, He actually works on the podcast too. He does the editing magic on the podcast and helps us sound good. Uh, Say hi, Nathan. Why don't you tell us what you do? Hello, Megan and Kiara. Thanks for inviting me to uh, come on here with y'all. Um, I'm the creative projects coordinator for HCWC, and basically I just uh, kind of uh, work with all aspects of uh, the, the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center on anything that's, I guess, a creative project. So I do a lot of uh, graphic design. Uh, I I create and manage our uh, our two websites. Um, I do a lot of video creation and editing, and like you said, I uh, edit the podcast from the back end. So it's very interesting to uh, be on this side of the microphone this month, and so I'm excited to have this conversation with y'all. Thanks yeah. for having me. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Like you said, he edits our website. So if you haven't gone and you haven't visited, go to stopthehurt.org see what he's helping us put together. And if you live in the Hayes or Caldwell County area in Texas, go to hcwc.org because he creates that website too. Thank you for the great introduction. <laughs> so I'm just going to um, start it off. What what have y'all been up to lately? Oh, man. Uh, well, not a whole lot of going out into you know public per se. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been doing a lot of um, time, like working on house projects, doing a lot of yard work. Um, we have gone to the river, uh, like at odd hours of the day, which has been kind of nice um, when it wasn't snowing, I guess, because it's Texas. So one day it's, you know, river weather and one day it's we had snow. So that was kind of fun because my kids love that. Yeah, and just watching way too many shows on Netflix. Me too. I've pretty much been doing the same. I mean, I haven't, I don't really go out. I haven't gone to the river, but I've been watching a lot of Netflix, uh, avoiding taking Christmas decorations down for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, I learned that I'm one of those people. I rarely decorate for Christmas, but when I do, it's Christmas for a while. Um, staying inside, uh, being hopeful that we'll get to go out and see people face to face and get to interact without masks on, hopefully somewhere in the distant, but close enough future. (laughs) The safe safe future. Yes. Yeah. What about you, Nathan? Um, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm really into outdoor stuff. So as that's kind of how I keep my sanity. So, um, me and my girlfriend, we do a lot of gardening, we have a little plot at a local community garden, and uh, yeah, like I go to the river whenever I can. Um, I've actually kind of picked up skateboarding again as like a kind oh. of COVID activity. Um, I kind of put it down for a long time because I've had too many in- injuries, but this kind of time has given me a chance to, you know, skate, but not be too... Uh, 
too adventurous so I don't get hurt again, but it's been really fun. Cool. I hope to use the quarantine time to learn to roller skate again, and I haven't done that. So hopefully I will this year. Yeah, you need like a treadmill or something. I think that would be good for learning to skate indoors. (laughs) (laughs) Careful. I know, that sounds scary. (laughs) Um, But, which is, that's a good segue talking about like things that I hope that I was, a lot of us were able to do last year. It's no longer 2020. We made it to 2021, which is exciting. 2020 felt like a really long year, but also a year that went by pretty quickly at the same time, which is a strange feeling. Uh, A lot happened in 2020. I feel like that's an understatement. It was a very eventful year. Um, So for this episode, we're going to be looking back on 2020. And our first episode, we spoke about how outspoken the word kind of has a connotation uh, historically or just like in general. It's like this idea of like speaking up in a way that makes people feel uncomfortable. Uh, But we want to try to change the meaning of that word and using outspoken as a way of speaking up even when it's unpopular. Uh, So in the theme with the podcast, we've decided to, for this episode, we're going to highlight some of the outspoken moments, the moments of social change that happened in 2020 and how they relate to interpersonal violence. And of course, this isn't an all extensive list. Uh, 2020 was a very long year, Uh, but we will highlight some of the things that did happen last year. And once this episode goes up, if you had a different moment that was a favorite of yours that so of social change that happened in 2020 let us know on social media follow us on social media and let us know what your favorite moment was Um, and we will give a content warning for this episode we're going to be talking about sexual violence murder and police violence there won't be any details but we're going to give that warning just in case you are sensitive to any of these topics so i will pass it over to megan to get us started Thanks, Kiara. I'm going to get us started by talking about the Me Too movement and what that looked like in 2020. Tarana Burke, who we, as we know, is the founder of the Me Too movement from uh, back in 2006. This year in 2020, she launched what's called the Me Too Act Two. And it's a block and I don't it's it's a it's a called block. It's blockchain technology. So it's crowdsourced uh, blockchain technology that allows anyone anywhere to be able to give information on how someone can be active to fight to end sexual violence. So it's a it's a campaign that gives survivors, advocates and allies all these tools that they would need to be able to work towards, uh, you know, a world free of sexual violence. So it can be it's daily action that someone could take. So it could be, uh, you know, maybe it's a book to read. Maybe it's a uh, march to attend or just there's so many different things I went on there um, to look at it. And there's just a lot of different uh, avenues and different ways that you can be participating in this um, movement if it if it speaks to you. Um, she also created the uh, Me Too voter hashtag, which I also think is a really important piece of being outspoken for survivors, because this is basically Tarana Burke is wanting to send the message to survivors that they're a politically motivated power base. And we're going to, I think, probably be able to address this a lot more when we start talking about the systems that cause sexual violence to thrive. But um, recognizing that Me Too, that we're a voter base, that people who uh, have experienced Me Too or are part of that Me Too movement have power in their vote and have power in their voices. And when we can get together, we can actually see change happen. Yeah, I think it's really important that 
they created that you know website or app because it does kind of create some actionable items that people can can jump in on i know that whenever me too was like very big here it was you know seeing so many people jump out and like as a as a guy seeing that it's like i don't think that i'm ever going to be like hopefully never going to be like on the you know perpetrating side of that but to see that and be like well what can i actually do to engage in this in a in a healthy way as a man um and kind of do the opposite of what a lot of the things i saw about it which were victim blaming or trying to i guess rationalize why people would come out now or why they were you know thinking maybe like why they were perpetrated against in the first place and just take that and do something positive with that energy which is great that people have another website to go to to be able to engage with other people from around the world like megan said like you have a bunch of different perspectives and i know that initially when me too started like a lot of the power was for people to feel like to hear other people say you're not alone and not, not only are you not alone, but I believe you. And there's a lot of power in that. But when mm-hmm. you see a hashtag that sometimes it's like, I can read this and I'm taking information and this is good. But like, what now? What do I do now? What are my next steps? Um, and it's so great that you have not just one person or like a team of people, but people globally coming together to actively say like, hey, this is what we can all do as next steps. So. I'm great that this exists and that it's finally coming to a place where we can all see it and access it. Cause I'm sure that it was a long time coming as a project for Toronto Burke and everybody else in the Me Too movement. And Nathan, you made a good point too. Is like, people were wondering like, why come out now? Why is this, you know, why are, we, why are people suddenly um, being outspoken about this? Uh, even though it's been going on forever and ever. And, uh, and I think there, the power came from that, the numbers almost like the power came from seeing that we aren't alone and that so often there's a um a huge backlash when someone comes out and says that they're a survivor and this was a moment where it was the the numbers were so overwhelming that i felt like it's almost like they're the back it it lessened the backlash that would have normally happened if an individual had come out alone because it was a group of people coming together and saying this is happening to all of us versus one person if that makes sense yeah. yeah, it's harder to discredit or not believe when one person says it, but it's a little bit harder to sort of turn a blind eye, which people still do. But mm-hmm. I feel like it does make it harder to turn a blind eye when you have more people coming together saying like, hey, this is a problem or this happened to me too. And this is something that needs to be addressed so it doesn't happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. Also in 2020, I know a big part of the Me Too movement in Hollywood was due to, you know, Weinstein and all of his, you know, the many people that he abused while he was um, in Hollywood. And in 2020, he was found, um, he was sentenced, you know, he was found guilty and they were, he was given like a 20 something year sentence in March, um, which so a lot of people would consider a victory for me too. But really, the as Toronto Burke says, the victory is in seeing that, seeing uh, everyday people not blame themselves for sexual violence and that allowing them to live a fuller life and not just, you know, one person's conviction, because we know that one individual, um, whereas, you know, yes, he should. Yeah. I mean, he definitely has needs to pay for his crime, 
but many people uh, were complicit in him doing that for so many years. If this happened for this many years, it's more than just this individual that allowed it to happen because there's, you know, we look at a lot of different cases happening um, in the headlines with, you know, R. Kelly or the the doctor, uh, the gymnast doctor, you know, this is abuse that's happening for years to many people. And there's a lot of people that were complicit in allowing that to happen. Like we said, abuse thrives in silence. And when people don't feel like they can speak up about it, or they don't feel like the systems that they're supposed to go through to seek justice will actually help them and bring them closer to justice, then it creates a barrier for them to want to go and report in the first place. If you don't if you think that you're not going to be believed, you're going to be questioned, or uh, if you know that the outcome could possibly be that this person gets community service or they pay a fine and they don't do any other sort of, there isn't additional justice that comes from that, then it can be a huge barrier for people because it's sort of disheartening where you want to feel like something's being done and the people that are supposed to help you aren't really helping. For sure. And the more power that person has, the harder it's going to be for them to get to feel like they're going to get any justice or even to be believed because the person has so much protection. For sure. It was a it was a bit of a collective sigh of relief, I think, when he was served his justice and not that his justice is, you know, an, enough. But mm-hmm. um, just to see that someone who is that powerful kind of come down for an issue that I think historically society has not even kind of thought it was that big of a deal was really like a, a, a good a good feeling, I think, for a lot of people. And when we take down, you know, giants like that, that helps everyday people too. It creates, it makes it so it's easier to go after like the guy who's not famous, who's also doing the same thing, you know, like it, it kind of gives that push for people to be like, oh, wait, and like actually name it and realize this is happening. This is not okay. And now I've seen that this isn't okay because it's, this person has gone, has, you know, suffered the consequences. Now we can start doing it at all these different levels because it's affecting people at all levels, really. Yeah, it's not just the Hollywood producer who's using his power to abuse actresses and actors and other people that are working for him, that it's the person that you work with too, or it's somebody else that you may know, or just somebody who isn't in the limelight. We know that abuse is about power and control, not necessarily about having money or having a person who's influenced. Like those things are definitely forms of power, but there are people who don't have that, that also abuse that power and control that's in place. Yeah, I I think that it's definitely matters and it's definitely important. And I, I mean, I remember being feeling a sigh of relief when, you know, Weinstein, because it is, it's good to see that justice can be carried out and that justice can be served because some often I feel that for survivors, it doesn't feel that it doesn't seem that justice gets served all the time. So it is nice to see that, you know, it did play out that way. But I do think the media does often focus on the individual and not the environment that allowed it to thrive or not the power dynamics that allow abuse to continue to thrive. And if we could adjust, and I guess that's why we're here, right? We're trying to (laughs) change that conversation to where we start talking more about those ideals like power and control that you just mentioned, that those are the things that are leading abuse to occur and not just this uh, morally deprived perpetrator, you know, not just this individual person, but it's an entitlement that they feel entitled that they're that they should be able to do this. Like I have like I am the decision maker, you know, for this. And it just gets out of hand and they start 
uh, it starts coming down to like, well, maybe you should be wearing, you know, this outfit or maybe you should be doing it. And it just starts becoming more and more trying to control these people. And then, and then, you know, as we know, in the case of Weinstein, sexual abuse is also occurring. Right. And then looking at last year when people were having a lot of conversations about holding people accountable, especially people who abuse that power and control. We also saw a lot of conversations about uh, trying like a push to change systems and like systems that allow violence to continue to happen. Like systemic change is the, the phrasing that I'm looking for. And for a number of people, systemic change isn't something that they're familiar with. It's not like words that they've heard before. And they wonder what that means uh, to go in and create systemic change because there's the idea of like there are individuals who are doing this and we just need to stop the individual. And when we address the the individual, then these ab- violence and abuse won't occur uh, in our communities or in our country or in our society. But we know that there are also st- systems in place that allow these things to continue to happen. When you create a system that allows inequality and oppression to thrive, it's a broken system that harms people, but it also means that you can change the system to be one that creates equity and equality that does allow people to thrive, that doesn't harm people, that you can create some of those changes. And people may be wondering, like, what does that change look like? And we will talk in this episode about what are some ways that people have actively, on one end, introduced legislation on the federal level to create changes within that system can't really talk about 2020 in the summer of 2020 without bringing up the Black Lives Matter movement. We had the, I think, historic, like the largest historical movement ever this summer. And uh, Tarana Burke actually talks about Black Lives Matter and how it's similar to Me Too in that they're both fighting, they're both about fighting injustices and both moves, uh, movements are predicated on undoing systems of oppression that you were just talking about. So in, in BLM, we're getting, or, in, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, we're talking about how people are being mistreated by the police or how, um, you know, Black people are not being treated the same. And that that often, I think, I've, I've seen, you know, have a victim-blaming mentality that reminds me of the victim-blaming mentality that we see in Me Too. I'm see, I mean, I see a lot of parallels yeah, for sure. I think that there's in in that victim blaming kind of thing. It's it's also I think people don't want to think that these kind of uh, oppressive things can happen to them or that they're, you know, that because they are happening to someone, that means that for some so in some way that they they egged it on. Um so for, you know, for me too it would be like either a quest for more power so these women are were were more willing to go to that next level to achieve something at specifically like with with harvey weinstein and then with black lives matter i think a lot of the talk is about like if they had just listened immediately and just become fully complacent then that that wouldn't happen to them and you know maybe that's what i would have done so but it doesn't address the historical constraint that Black Americans have have felt for, you know, essentially forever in this country. 
Right, because people think that the system's changed. They think, like, well, we don't have, there's equality that exists. We don't have segregation in the United States anymore. Women have the right to vote or that women, they believe, like, people have been advocating for women to have equal pay for so long that we must have equal pay now, right? Without even thinking about, like, the different identities that exist within that when looking at inequality, pay inequality for women or people of marginalized identities. So the more identities you add to that when you're a woman of color, you're a trans woman of color, that also creates even more of a divide between the pay equality. But people think we've made so much progress in our society that these things can't really exist anymore, these forms of inequality. So it must be something that the individual is doing on their part because it's hard for them to wrap their head around the fact that like these systems of equality still exist inequality still exists because and I know that privilege is a loaded word for a lot of people but when you have an identity that is I will say quote unquote privilege the privilege lies in it's a privilege where you don't have to think about what's happening it's not something that's on your everyday consciousness or your radar it's not something that you have to think about when you're going about your daily life. And that's a reality for a lot of people. When you don't have to think about it, then you can get to a place where you think that this is the reality for everybody around you. So it can be difficult when people say, no, things haven't changed. And this is a po- this is something that's going on not only in my community, but it's going on in your community too. And then there is systems in place, institutions in place that allow it to keep happening. So maybe there are people who have attitudes and beliefs within like the company that they work for that allow discrimination to still happen, or there's policies in place that people can abuse that allow discrimination to still happen. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about changing uh, systems is trying to change those policies, trying to change Things that are long standing within the community and within like the nation that will have lasting change and impacts. Things like the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in 1990, or women receiving the right to vote, the 19th Amendment. These are all examples of systemic change that people experience inequality and discrimination within their own communities and they act. They actively advocated to have these things change, and then policies were introduced into the government that would make it to where people can't just rely on the fact, well, this is just how it is, and this is the way that it's always been. There's going to be a set baseline standard, and the baseline standard is not going to be that you can't discriminate against people because of these specific identities that they have. Yeah, it makes me think like, um, how often other people's people's whose experiences are different than yours, people aren't believing them. So like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, how much simpler it would be just to practice empathy in our regular everyday life. And that when someone who has an experience or a life circumstance that's different than ours, when they say to you, this is what I'm experiencing, we just believe them instead of finding reasons to, you know, blame or find individual causes. When they say, this is what I'm experiencing, we just believe them. <laughs> You know? Right, which is can be challenging for a lot of people because I think that they have a fear that somebody else getting the same thing that they have must mean that it will take away from what they have. Like there's mm-hmm. a finite amount of equality that exists within the community 
and that we just have to divide it up and there's no way we can do this equally, that it must mean that something's going to get taken from me Mm -hmm. or somebody needs to be in power and I don't want it to be this other group because then that mean that that could mean that I might lose something that I want in my life or the people that are in power. They feel from another thing that I hear is like people who are in power and government or whatever, they make decisions that are best for me and my community and my family. And they have a very, I think human fear of losing that. And they think of it in like a polarizing way. And it can be new, a new idea to try to think of a system or institutions or policies that meet the needs of everybody because we as a country started as creating policies in a system that isn't going to work for everybody. Like the foundation is inequality. And when that's what you're used to for so long, trying to change that foundation to be more equal can feel unstable or scary or just not realistic for a lot of people. But there are a lot of people who do think it's realistic. I'm one of those people. I do think it's realistic. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would, I think that it's realistic too. And I think that it is important to, to note that it is a systemic issue. It's not like something a single law can fix. It's not something that, you know, even a string of laws can fix. It is systemic. It's like, it goes down all the way into your belief system. So we we definitely need to i think that as a society we have made progress in that way you know even the generation that is you know coming up now you look at them and and you're like wow they're extremely open mm-hmm. and they have friends who are who are you know all shades and you know all sexual identities and all all gender identities and it's pretty chill and they're probably like why are y'all so weird and hung up on on all this stuff? So I think we have made change, and I think that's a beautiful thing. I think personally the the way change happens is in spurts. Mm-hmm. It's like we, there was a big a lot of laws and things that came out of the '60s and the the civil rights um, you know era of the '60s, and we saw a lot come out of there. And I think we're also going to see a lot. Uh, come out of of what we're going through right now i think that you know police reform and even prison reform are are definitely on the minds of a lot of people and and you know hopefully we're working towards chipping away at our at our psyche that we have kind of been indoctrinated with through um through our parents and our society and i think it's also really important even six since the 60s to look at our society and see how much how much more diverse we are and like you said Kiara like people are most likely to do what's best for their community so if your community is more diverse then you're probably more likely going to create laws and create equality for the masses of people and so that's something that we have not seen historically and so I think that we are making change, but again, it, it's it's a systemic issue that is not going to be able to be solved overnight. I really like that you explain how um, when we say a systemic issue too, it's not just institutions; it's also like our societal belief systems, because that is what Kiara and I, you know, that's our that's what we're trying to do in our jobs every day is try to change those societal belief systems that enable those systems. And that's if we can change hearts and minds 
then we will change the institutional systems, right? So like this new generation, it gives me so much hope. And you saying that was like, yeah. I was like, he's right. We have had so much like social change, just like as a society, like the way we look at consent to, you know, the way we talk about sex, like even just the difference from when I was in high school to now that I'm teaching high school students is very different. So I do think that like, if we can, the key is changing is like the awareness and changing hearts and minds. And then we, from there, we can look back and say, oh, wait a second. And that's when people can say, oh, wait, this system, this institution needs to change. Right. Because the people are, the people who are in these systems or they're in power, the people that are bosses or your elected officials, they're individuals that come from your community too. They're individuals that learn things from a family who lives in a community and that community participates in different functions of their community, like the school that they go to or the church that they attend or the grocery store where they go shopping. Uh, and then those larger communities live in like their regional area areas, which is in a state with this also within uh, a country. And those people become your elected officials. They become your bosses. They become people who create policies. They become people who introduce laws. They become people who are social media influencers who have a big influence on people who take to heart what they say and it matters to them. So these people then become a part of, they make up the system and that's how they make that change. So yeah, I really like that you said that too, because it's not just like this lofty idea of like you immediately mm-hmm. need to go up and change laws, which is still important. Go out and vote. That's one way that people who aren't lawmakers can go out and make changes by exercising the right to vote. If you have the ability to vote, we know that there are a lot mm-hmm. of people who don't have the ability to vote in our country, uh, but the people who can vote do go out there and vote and also speak up, which is the whole purpose of the podcast is to talk about ways that people do that. And we talk about it on the individual level. But for this episode, we definitely wanted to highlight some of those things that people are doing higher up in the system to create long lasting systemic change. So we'll go ahead and we'll take a break, our self-compassion break. And when we get back, we'll talk a little bit about some of these policies that have been introduced into the government and other social change that we saw in 2020. Our self-compassion tip for this episode is to be mindful when the news or social media become overwhelming. There's a difference between staying informed and becoming so informed that it affects your mental health. Give yourself permission to unplug from the news and give yourself a break. Taking the time to connect with loved ones and people who are supportive can help give us perspective. We're all human and do not need to have everything under control to be lovable. Grant yourself the same comfort and kindness you would a best friend or loved one. Now, back to the episode. All right, so we are back. And to get us started, I'm going to talk about um, something that happened early in early in 2020, uh, which ties back to we talked a little bit about the Me Too movement at the beginning of the episode. And this is a subset of that with the military me mo- military Me Too movement that was uh, sparked by the murder of soldier Vanessa Guillen early in April of 2020. So to give some background, Vanessa Guillen was a specialist in the Army stationed at Fort Hood here in Texas, and she disappeared on April 22nd, and then her body was later found on June 30th. 
And according to her family, she planned to file a sexual harassment complaint against one of her superiors in her command before she disappeared. And for months, there were protests and there were calls for investigations into her disappearance because her body hadn't been found yet uh, when people were calling for those, uh, that investigation. And then after her body was found, the army conducted investigation into her murder and they concluded that there was no connection between the sexual harassment that she had experienced and her murder, which understandably sparked a lot of outrage within her community, within her family and around the country. So then her family, along with advocates and activists around the country, has started to use the hashtag, hashtag justice for Vanessa Guillen to tell their daughter's story and to call for a congressional investigation into her murder. And in that process, it also started a military Me Too movement where we saw other service members using the hashtag I am Vanessa Guillen to speak publicly about the harassment and assault and abuse that they've experienced in the military. And then a little bit later in the year in September, a bill was introduced named the I am Vanessa Guillen Act. And it was introduced by a group of U.S. lawmakers in her memory. And the act would make sexual harassment a crime within the Uniform Code of Military Justice and move prosecution decisions of sexual assault and harassment cases out of the military chain of command. And if you listen to any other episodes, you'll know that I have, I come from a military family and my perspective is that of somebody whose parents were in the military. So I was never personally in the military, but my parents were in the military and a lot of my friends' parents were in the military. So I learned a lot about the chain of command because I remember a lot of decisions being made. Uh, My mom would come back and tell me, well, this is what my commanding officer said that I have to do. And my understanding from when I was growing up was that uh, even I remember learning about like sexual assault and harassment cases, the decisions go up through the chain of command. That's usually the first starting place for making a lot of decisions within the military. So stepping back and thinking about investigating sexual assault and sexual harassment within the military, that's already feels like an issue, like a barrier that is being created that if you have to go within your chain of command to talk about assault and abuse of you experience that you have have experienced and then the person who perpetrated against you as a person who's within your chain of command how can you report somebody who's supposed to be a person who's supposed to investigate something happening to you or they're supposed to protect you if something happens to you or you go and you report it but the chain of command is invested in protecting that perpetrator or just protecting themselves they don't want to be they don't want to come off as this happened while it was on my watch or I didn't do anything about it or we have issues within our system. So it's easy for people to keep things silent or blame the victim because it's a, a very hands-off thing. Like this is, this has nothing to do with me. I can't do anything about this or I'm not going to do something about this. And that's something that's existed within the military for quite a while, uh, for a very, very long time. And I know that uh, the murder of Vanessa Yan sparked a lot of conversations around uh, violence and harassment within the military, but I know that it's been an ongoing conversation people have had for years and years and years about what they've experienced within the military. So I'm incredibly grateful that this bill was introduced to try to 
make some changes within that system. And some good news is that last month in December, right at the end of 2020, the Army announced 14 firings and suspicions or suspensions, excuse me, among commanders and lower lower level leaders as a result of of investigation into patterns of discrimination and harassment and assault at Fort Hood in Texas. So they're trying to do the work of uh, holding people accountable for either not doing what they needed to do or allowing things to continue to happen within the system, within the military. So this is Good news. Uh, I, as far as, as I know, as of when we're recording this episode, the middle of January, these acts haven't been passed yet. It can take a while to pass different legislation, but it's a, a, it's a good step towards trying to address a system that has allowed assault and abuse and violence to continue to be perpetrated within the military system. Uh, And also, if you have uh, resources, because resources are always very important, uh, resources that you can use for military members, and we're going to put it in the show description as well. But if you or somebody you know uh, has done military service or you're in the military and you've experienced sexual assault, you can go to safehelpline.org. They have information as well as advocates that you can speak to. And if you just want to learn more about the issue of sexual violence within the military, there's a documentary that was released in 2012 called The Invisible War about sexual assault in the military. And as of when we're recording this, I found the full documentary on YouTube. So you can go and search for it and watch it there. I know that things staying up on YouTube is kind of iffy depending on whoever finds out a full documentary is posted on there but as as far as what I know right now you can go there and watch it it's also a PBS documentary so you can just search for it and see if you can find it around yeah I think that if anyone has any questions about why people don't report I think that this is kind of an example of kind of the extreme version of why people don't report because in the military, it's literally built mm-hmm. on hi- the hierarchy and the and power control is like the main thing in in military. And also, it's like if if you think it's hard to report in in civilian society, if you go against your your commanding officer in the military, it's not like at Costco where they may fire you. Um, you can go to you can be court-martialed and go to jail or even prison for for not listening to uh, to your commanding officer. So to expect someone who's in a fragile state who has been sexually assaulted to go to that person who has so much more power than them and expect them to not have any kind of repercussions on themselves, it seems like a no-brainer to take that out of out of the the picture and make it anonymous or go to a third party to to do an investigation. Absolutely. So moving on to other legislation that was introduced but did pass in October, we saw the passing of Savannah's Act and the Not Invisible Act. And those were two laws that were passed and they were aimed at stopping the violence against Native uh, women and girls here in the United States. And both laws are goals that people working within the missing and murdered Indigenous women movement have been working towards for a very long time. And 
It's not something that everybody's familiar with in the country, that Native women are murdered at 10 times the national average, and over 80% of Native women experience violence in their lifetime, and that includes domestic violence and sexual violence. So the prevalence is incredibly high. We know in general the statistic that we put out for domestic violence and sexual violence within the United States is one in three for domestic violence and one in four Mm -hmm. for sexual violence. And that's a staggering statistic. So then when you add that it's 10 times the national average for Native women and the national average is one in three and one in four, we know that it's a very pervasive issue and that it's a long, long overdue. So these are... These laws have been introduced and passed over decades of grassroots Mm -hmm. efforts that have been led by Native and Indigenous communities. And then when Savannah's Act was passed, which was introduced in 2016 after the murder of Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, uh, a pregnant woman of the Spirit Lake tribe, Uh, The law essentially uh, was passed with the goal of improving communications between tribal, local, state, and federal law enforcement. And improving those communications looks like tracking data better, improving outreach to tribes about their ability to enter data into the national missings and unidentified person systems, and more. So it's letting people know about what rights they have, what tools they have access to, and then actually giving them access to being able to use these tools. Because I know that it, there are separate governments that exist within like tribal communities and then state, local, and federal. Uh, but we want to make sure that these, all of these governmental entities are working well together, especially when the violence that it's being perpetrated against missing and emer- missing and murdered Indigenous women, they say, is primarily being perpetrated by people who are not Native mm-hmm. or Indigenous. So that already creates another barrier when. How do you bring somebody to justice within your own laws and systems that don't have to adhere to your own laws and systems? So that's why you need to be able to create legislation to make it to where all of these systems work Mm -hmm. better together so we can bring justice to an issue. And another, uh, as I mentioned, the Non-Visible Act that was introduced, which was passed, and it was passed to increase coordination of efforts to reduce uh, the violent crimes that happen on Native land, including creating an advisory committee. So not only creating better systems, but creating uh, a purposeful and meaningful committee to actively take action to address these things Mm -hmm. that are happening. So it's a long time coming. And of course, we know that it's not going to be an end-all, be-all solution, but it's definitely a start to um, a conversation that people in Native and Indigenous communities have been having for a very long time. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally still stuck on that statistic that 80% of Native women are experiencing violence. Right. And it shouldn't be like I think of usually whenever people are thinking about uh, violence against women, they I, we hear a lot of like, she's somebody's mother, she's somebody's mm-hmm. sister, she's mm-hmm. somebody's aunt, she's somebody's best friend. Um, and we know that like, it shouldn't be just because of her relation to somebody else that she's still a person, she's still somebody. But it also, um, it, cre- it creates empathy for some people. Uh, imagine that this is your community, your small tight-knit community, your small town, 
and nobody's doing something about it and you want other people to do something about it and you see a larger government that exists outside that can do something about it and people have been calling for it for years but you're not seeing the change so to the very very least it's incredibly disheartening there's no words for it uh, but i am grateful for social media for the its ability to bring more people into a different conversation so they can be an take an active role in doing something or at least supporting people while they take an active role in doing things for themselves as well. It sounds like it's needed to have that collaboration too um, between, you know, their tribes and our, I guess, law enforcement or who, whoever that would be, uh, federal law enforcement, having that collaboration could actually help, especially if, you, like you said, so much of the violence that's occurring is happening from people who are outside the tribe coming in. Um, it seems like you would need to have that collaboration in order to prevent it or, or intervene all right, moving on, I want to talk a little bit about workplace inequality and pay inequality and how this year, or I'm sorry, in 2020, one of the headlines was that the WNBA, the Women's Basketball Association, achieved equal pay through, you know, lots of legal battles and things like that. And how um, really the Me Too movement in 2017 is when we started seeing an uptick in a lot of these legal battles and conversations around pay equality because it, Again, when Me Too happened, it caused a lot of people to start looking at these systems and that meant looking at workplace and looking at sexual harassment and pay inequality. So it caused a lot of people to start looking at these things and then recognizing that they weren't equitable and then, you know, start fighting for equality. It happened, uh, the soccer team, U.S. women's soccer team a couple of years ago, right on the tails of the Me Too movement, actually. And now we're seeing it with the WNBA. Which makes me think, I guess, as a side note, makes me think of, we know that historically there's been discrimination against sports and there's been discrimination in sports, gender discrimination in sports with the introduction of Title IX mm -hmm. that most people are familiar with, like discrimination in sports through Title IX. And it makes it to where at least in K through 12 settings, women's sports have to have the same resources allocated to them yes. as men's sports. So the fact that this is just another aspect of that, that it starts when you're in high school playing sports mm -hmm. and you're doing it for fun and it's recreational and then you graduate and then you go on to do it in a professional capacity. But there's still inequalities that exist on that stage as well. Right. And it's not. And, it, and that's the thing is just like, you know, sexual harassment and sexual violence aren't about sex. The pay discrepancies like this inequality of like even their lodging it's not about money it's about power right it's about and also like the gender stereotypes i think even come come into play because you'll often hear when we have when athletes are having conversations about pay equality you hear stereotypes like well you're paid less because women aren't as good of athletes and things you know those kind right. of stereotypes they're not as interesting right like the, and then when you brought up the women's national soccer team the u.s soccer team they're i don't even know sports and i know that their team is way way better than the men's mm -hmm. national soccer team and they're one of the best in the world yeah so that shouldn't that's not even a good argument that they're not as talented or they're not as interesting because they are right it's kind of hard to argue that they're not they're you know they're not as good of athletes or they're not as interesting when they're winning world titles right <laughs> it makes it a lot more difficult and then i mean and even you could argue with you know wnba they're not getting the same airtime as 
uh, and I and I'll and I'll say I don't know a lot about sports, but like they're not women. The women's NBA aren't getting the same amount of airtime or even prime time that the men's NBA is. So maybe it's not so much that like people are interested. Maybe it's a matter of like you're playing these games at like two a.m. on a Thursday versus you know prime time slots. You know, so I think there's a, there's probably a lot to unpack there as far as like how is how are our gender stereotypings affecting it even being equitable to begin with or even having this the same shot of it being equitable as far as like quality of training i mean there was so the list of like differences was just on every aspect that you could think of from like quality of training to everything uh was not the same and they're both athletes right the they the women are also practicing and doing all these things and playing these games as well they should be their body should be taken care of in the same way right yeah, and I think it, that also speaks to the systemic issue because, it, I mean, I'm looking at here, it says the average pay for M, uh, WNBA was around 116,000 men, 7.5 million. That's that's like 70 Yeah, I was times, like, that's not even a small right? wage gap. Like, that's a... Yeah, it's like, that's like 70 times. So, like, a lot of people are, oh, well, well men, they w- get watched more. Well, 70 times more? Mm-hmm. I mean... Maybe, but I think, and then you also look at, well, some of the, a lot of that is their, um, sponsorships, and things. you know, mm-hmm. their sponsorships. So they're, you know, and that's, that also speaks to the systemic issue. Does Nike really need to have however many males on their team and what, 70 times less women? Because I'm pretty sure a woman could sell a shoe too, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I think that like I said, that speaks to maybe it's just what we're used to or what we're comfortable with. And it like takes time to to see a, a woman playing a, one of the main sports and be kind of OK with that. I think that the women's soccer team really spotlighted mm-hmm. that because they were just so good. And I will say that I watched a lot more of their games than like the, the men's mm-hmm. soccer games at least the US team because yeah they they're just not they weren't competing at that same level i think that it's it takes maybe some uh, private sector organizations to have i guess courage to to put that woman centered yeah and i think there's also and and it's important to also say that and I, we might have already said it but that's not just happening in we're hearing about this in a headline because it's the WNBA right but like pay inequality is happening in every field that it happens in STEM. I mean, it happens. It happens at you know the grocery store. I don't know. It happens probably in some way in, in every field, right? There's uh, some sort of there could be a potential for pay inequality depending on like what that culture is of where the institution you work. But I, what I've also what I see again is people addressing it as an individual issue um, versus a systemic problem, even though it's happening all over. And I've seen a lot of again, victim blaming to women who are paid or victim blaming to people who are paid less. So like uh, you're paid less because you're going home to your kids instead of going out and having, uh, you know, playing golf with your boss. You're not leaning in. You're not leaning in enough. Uh, You're not uh, playing the game. You know, there's a lot of like blaming of women for not playing the game or doing like the stuff that's supposed to get you noticed by your boss and paid more and all these things. But if it's happening across the board to all these different people then it's then to me 
it's not we can't keep saying it's an individual problem when it's happening to so many people right systems if you do it repeatedly then it becomes a pattern and when you have a number of patterns that are in place and it becomes just commonplace for this is the way that we've always done it and this is the way we're always going to do it and then you can create a system that reflects that i think it's also you know important to know too that research shows us that when there is when we have pay discrepancies among men and women that it it, ca- it it puts women at risk in being in domestic violence situations even more so because you don't have that financial stability and the like negotiation that you would have if you had if you had financial stability in your relationship so uh, the research is actually showing that the, the wage gap that we have is actually contributing to domestic violence or you could look at it from the other way by decreasing this by decreasing the wage gap, we can decrease instances of domestic violence as well. That finances can be a big barrier because then you can't move like you may rely on an abusive partner for money mm-hmm. or they may not allow you to work. So you don't have money that you saved before you came into this relationship or you don't have money to get a divorce or you need the money to pay for things if you have children together. So you just rely on this partner and you stay in that relationship. But if there's equality, uh, pay equality, potentially you could be making just as much as your partner if your partner is a male partner and you're female, mm-hmm. um, that you don't have to rely on this other income in order to just exist as a human being who lives a life free from violence and abuse. Yeah, it's important. It's just it's important to know that financial stability is a is a factor when we when we're talking about, you know, like systems that contribute to domestic violence and systems that contribute to, you know, interpersonal violence. Financial stability can become a factor in a lot of different ways. And uh, and you know, and how you're treated at work can become a factor in like how you're treated by society as well as we see like if women are paid less uh, and as and you'll I know Kara you're going to talk about LGBTQ protections in a second but how people are treated in the eyes of the law and how they're treated in society and in their workplace institutions they're all going to be interconnected in, in their risk factor for abuse right which then brings up um another thing that happened in 2020 was in June, during Pride Month, um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects LGBTQ employees from discrimination on the basis of sex. So for anybody who doesn't know as much about the Civil Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act states that it's unlawful to uh, fire, refuse to hire, or discriminate in the workplace on the basis of race color, religion, sex, or a national origin. So they found that uh, gender identity and sexual orientation falls under protections um, from discrimination on the basis of sex. So what happened um, in June, what that led up to what happened in June is that three cases were brought to the Supreme Court. And I'm not great with names, so if I am pronounce somebody's name wrong. I apologize ahead of time. Um, but of, of those cases, there was the first one was Gerald Bastock, who was fired after joining a gay recreational softball league. So this is something that happened outside of work, joined this gay recreational softball league and was outed in the process and then was fired. Donald Zarda was fired after coming out as gay at his job as a skydiving instructor. So at some point um, in that conversation that he had, he or at work, 
was outed. And my belief from what I read is that he just happened to talk about a partner at work um, and then was fired when somebody overheard. And then Amy Stevens, who was fired after coming out as transgender as at her job as a funeral director. So before uh, we talk a little bit more about that, just as an empathy exercise, like think about what it must feel like to have to go to your local government and then your state government and then the federal government to have to make an argue that who you love or who you are as an individual is not illegal and it's not wrong and it's not something that you should have to lose your job over. So they're basically having to go to many courts to have to argue their humanity, mm. to argue for people to not discriminate against them. Mm-hmm. And it did make it up to the federal Supreme Court. And there was a big ruling. As we know, there are protections that are in place now, but both Donald and Amy died before getting to see mm. that ruling. So they had to, towards the end of their life, had to argue their humanity and mm. many courts of law Mm -hmm. which is disheartening that's not what people should have to do you shouldn't have to argue that you shouldn't lose your job but it is a big win for employment discrimination because employment discrimination creates barriers of employment for we talked about women but also for people who are lgbtq specifically transgender people and trans women of color Um, and talking looking back about how discrimination in the workplace or barriers to um, sustainable and gainful and long-term employment can force people to have to seek employment that puts them at risk for experiencing sexual violence or domestic violence, or it makes it to where they're reliant on a partner who is abusive, and then they stay in that relationship because they can't get gainful employment, or they have to hide who they are at their job in order to keep their job. So this is a big deal because it creates more of that long-lasting change that we want to see. There are a number of different pieces when we talk about systems. I think about the different pieces of a car that allow the car to keep moving forward successfully and it makes it like reliable. (laughs) This is one of those uh, pieces that are needed in order to address that system, one of the many solutions. So yeah. We talked about a lot, um, but there are still solutions. Um, those are one of them. That is one of them. But what are some of the other solutions that y'all think need to happen within these different systems in order to create long and lasting social change? We need to support survivors. We need to have um, institutions need to have in place ways to disclose that would be free of any sort of that would make the person feel free of any sort of like repercussion like it needs to be like a safe place to disclose and and I think that's going to come with a lot more education around these issues and and really getting away from victim blaming which has been our a lot of our past and a lot of like what's still in our collective minds I think when it comes to these issues but continuing to educate people on how to support survivors and what that looks like in providing a place to disclose, having an environment of accountability. But really, I think it's survivor focus, like, you know, not looking at blaming the the victim or blaming the person that comes forward, but having accountability for the person who actually did the perpetration. Right. And I think I'll also add, like, we need to try to eliminate as many of the barriers as we can Mm-hmm. to where people don't have to stay in abusive situations or thinking about the primary prevention part of what we do for our jobs with education is that 
um, then people seek to enact violence as a way of maintaining power and control mm-hmm. because they're, for whatever reason, that's what they're choosing. And for some people, it's because they feel entitled to other things or they don't have certain things that they do want to have, like other forms of power and control and agency in their life. So then they're using violence as a way of getting something that they feel that they should have. So, yeah, I also want to. I also want to add um, solution is is creating opportunities for em- empowerment at the mm-hmm. local level mm-hmm. because we see all, all the things that we've looked at have kind of been on the social change level on everything that we've seen. But we also have like looking at all these, we see that change happens mm-hmm. slow and we have to have that support, that immediate and local support for for people who, I mean, these two people die before mm-hmm. before get, like seeing their their change made so without that support like what hcwc does at the local level it kind of just creates a, ba- a vacuum you know it kind of creates like what happens to these people when they're waiting for their mm-hmm. justice we have to have that support that's that's ready to go that's such a good point too this is happening in our community it feels when we're you know we spent the whole time talking about all these really big social movements but that's such a good point nathan is that this is happening in our community and that change starts small and if you can and if change starts with changing hearts and minds well like hello neighbor let's go like let's go talk to people in our community about this and and start changing hearts and minds and you know create a community that doesn't tolerate violence (laughs) which is a great way to wrap up the episode with our mm-hmm. prevention and action tip. And our tip for this episode is to find your way to be outspoken, to create social change within your own community. There are a lot of different ways that you can get involved in a cause that you're passionate about or that you're interested in. And we've talked about a number of different movements um, or different social change that's happened in the past year. And a lot of these things started because somebody spoke up. Um, And then other people join them in different ways, whether it was a grassroots effort or it started with hashtag online that somebody said something and somebody wanted to create action and other people joined in. So you can start with posting on social media, have conversations with the people that are around you, um, and then take more action by contacting your representatives in local government, as we mentioned in the first episode, that they are called representatives for a reason. They represent you. They're supposed to reflect the communities that they serve. So let them know what's important to you. Go to demonstrations and protests and then learn more. The, a great thing about the internet, when people have access to the internet, is that they have access to more knowledge and more experiences. So they have more opportunities to learn and get different perspectives and share what you learned with other people so they can learn too. And we know that social change can feel like a big task, but do remember where we talked about changing hearts and minds and some of that change happening on the individual level. Remember that small actions also contribute to social change and that everybody can do something that it doesn't have to be introducing a bill to pass at the federal level, but there is always something that everybody can do. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, uh, let us know your favorite outspoken moment or social change that happened in 2020. Let us know on social media. You can find us on Instagram at stopthehurt underscore HCWC. 
And on Facebook at Stop the Hurt HCWC, no underscore, we'll put that in the show description as well so you can follow us on social media. And until then, uh, speak up, speak out, and be outspoken. outspoken.